all Glens Falls. It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Tuesday, February 6th. I'm Monica Sandresky. And I'm Todd Moe. A trial date has been set for the man accused of a racist shooting in Buffalo in 2022. Some family members of victims say they're frustrated with the defense's stall tactics. I would just say that I'm happy that things are moving forward. Not as quickly as I think any of us would like, but it's good to have dates, right? Dates are good for goals. Researchers at Cornell University were shocked to find 95% of Adirondack Lakes have an oxygen problem that could have real impacts on cold water fish. The breadth of the problem across the thousands of lakes and ponds in the Adirondacks is way bigger than we had expected to see, even after you know coming from a team that's worked on brook trout for decades. Also on the show, Governor Kathy Hochul and Congresswoman Elise Stefanik are sparring over border security. And St. Lawrence County painter Stephen Cobb has turned his artistic focus to weathered barns in the region. I really like the fact that the siding coming off and you can really get in there and see the bones and... The history. The history, yeah. yeah. They're the subject of a new exhibit in Waddington. All of that's coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Long Run Wealth, an SEC-registered investment advisor in Lake Placid, providing comprehensive wealth management, retirement, and financial planning solutions, longrunwealth.com, and by Fisher, Bissett, Muldowney, and McArdle, attorneys and counselors at law with offices in Malone, Tupper Lake, and Saranac Lake, 800-941-5001. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. A trial date has been set for the man accused of killing 10 people in Buffalo in 2022. Peyton Gendron from the Binghamton area is charged with targeting black people in a racist attack at a Topps supermarket. The trial in federal court is set for September 8th, 2025. WBFO's Grant Ashley reports for the New York Public News Network. Justice Lawrence Villardo, the judge presiding over the case, described that date as both, quote, real and, quote, aspirational, adding that he would only push it back under extenuating circumstances. Federal prosecutors who are seeking the death penalty against Gendron had originally pushed for a start date of April 14th, 2025. That's a stark contrast from the defense team's request to delay setting a trial date until more of the pre-trial litigation has played out. Buffalo Common Council member Zanetta Everhart, whose son Zaire Goodman was injured in the shooting, told reporters on the courthouse steps that while she was frustrated with the defense team's, quote, stall tactics, it was good to have a timeline for the trial. I would just say that I'm happy that things are moving forward, not as quickly as I think any of us would like, but it's good to have dates, right? Dates are good for goals, and like that's exactly what the judge said, right? Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. I think that that gives, you know, both sides enough time to prepare their cases. Lawyers in the case will spend the next 19 months conducting discovery and settling pretrial disputes. 
Under the schedule set by Justice Villardo, nine months will be devoted to the defense team's bids to move the trial out of western New York and to limit victim impact statements. The location of the trial will likely be decided by the summer of 2025. Prosecutors said in court that a trial would likely take four to five months, with most of that time being dedicated to jury selection. In the meantime, survivors and the family members of victims like Everhart are still waiting to see what a trial would look like. I don't think you can get mentally prepared for that. I think that, you know, especially because we don't know, right? We don't know if anyone's going to have to testify, right? Like, is Zaire going to have to actually get up there and testify, you know? So we don't know those the answers to those questions yet. In Buffalo, I'm Grant Ashley for North Country Public Radio. Governor Kathy Hochul and Congresswoman Elise Stefanik are sparring over border security. The two New York lawmakers have both issued public statements in the last week calling each other out. Emily Russell has the details. Last week, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik and more than a dozen Republican lawmakers held a press conference about the southern border. The numbers do not lie. Our country is being invaded right now, right in front of our very eyes because of Joe Biden's catastrophic border policies. Border crossings under President Biden are more than double than what they were under President Trump. Stefanik said last week that Biden was, quote, rolling out the red carpet for illegal immigrants. This is a national crisis. Every single community has turned into a border community because of the open border policies of Joe Biden. For months, though, Biden has been in talks with Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, coming close to a deal on the border. It would set aside $20 billion for border security and make it harder to apply for asylum. The president went so far as promising to shut the border down if the bipartisan bill is passed. But that bill has started to unravel in recent weeks. Trump is campaigning against it, calling for even stricter border security measures. Top Republicans like Stefanik have shifted the focus back to blaming Democrats like Governor Kathy Hochul. On Friday, I led New York Republicans calling on my home governor, Kathy Hochul, to join the 25 governors in support of Texas Governor Abbott. As Stefanik wrote a letter to Hochul urging her to, quote, take efforts to secure the northern border. Fellow North Country Congresswoman Claudia Tenney signed that letter. Then this week, Hochul pushed back, publishing a letter from her own administration. It urged Stefanik, Tenney, and other New York Republicans to support the bipartisan bill on border security. Hochul addressed the issue at an event on Monday. The only thing standing in the way is that the House Republicans refuse to take action. They don't want there to be a resolution because they want to keep the chaos going. The bill includes $1.4 billion to help states and localities with the migrant crisis. Hochul said New York needs some of that money to deal with its own influx of asylum seekers. But House Speaker Mike Johnson reiterated on Monday that the bipartisan border security bill is dead on arrival in the House. Emily Russell, North Country Public Radio. New York's migrant crisis is also playing out in the state budget negotiations. The influx of undocumented immigrants is costing the state and some localities large sums of money. Meanwhile, the governor is also defending her proposed cuts in school aid. From Albany, Karen DeWitt reports. 
Governor Kathy Hochul is proposing spending $2.4 billion to help house and feed some of the over 160,000 migrants who have entered New York during the past year. She wants to take $500 million from the state's reserve funds to help pay for the migrants' needs. She outlined her plans at her state budget presentation in January. But because the number of migrants and the expenses have only grown, I am proposing that we draw $500 million from state reserves that are intended for one-time emergencies like this. Hochul also wants to slow the rate of growth for funding school aid. She's proposing changing the way that the annual inflation rate is calculated and ending a provision called Hold Harmless that guarantees each school district never gets less money than it did the previous year. Those changes would result in a $420 million loss to school districts. The governor says the migrant and school aid proposals are unrelated, but Republicans who are in the minority in state government see a connection. Senator Jack Martins, a Republican from Long Island, spoke at a news conference to support school funding, where he said schools in his Senate district face reductions. At a time when she's cutting education for our children, she's prioritizing spending $2.4 billion on a self-created migrant crisis. He blames policies begun by Democratic administrations and local governments, including designating New York City as a sanctuary city for immigrants. The residents of my district and residents across this state did not vote for New York State to be a sanctuary state. They did not vote for New York City to be a sanctuary city. They didn't vote to have undocumented immigrants come into our country and take over resources that were meant for our communities and most importantly in this case for our children in our schools. Hochul says the GOP is conflating the two issues and twisting the narrative. She says Republicans in New York should instead call on their leadership in Congress to sign on to an immigration reform deal that has bipartisan support in the U.S. Senate. It's like somebody sets their house on fire and then complains it could take so long for the fire department to respond. Hochul is accusing the GOP of wanting to keep the chaos going for political advantage in the 2024 presidential election, where President Joe Biden is likely to face Republican former President Donald Trump. Senate Republicans say when it comes to school aid funding, they will work to see the cuts restored. Senator Jim Tedisco, a Republican from Saratoga County, spoke at a recent budget hearing. He also criticized Hochul for wanting to use state reserve funds to ease the migrant crisis instead of directing that money to schools. I and my conference are not going to go quietly into the night if this or any other budget tries to balance itself on the backs of our kids, their education, their future, or the taxpayers of New York State. On that topic, New York Democrats, at least in the legislature, agree. While they have not contested the governor's proposed spending on migrants, they also say that they want to restore the school aid cuts. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network.
You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 811. Good morning. I'm Todd Bone. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up, old barns are iconic landmarks across our region. We'll talk with a St. Lawrence County artist who's rediscovered their bleak beauty. That conversation in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. This is music by the Potsdam Trio Caramelo. Northern Light is supported by Adirondack Foundation, connecting people, ideas, and resources to improve lives and expand opportunities throughout the Adirondack region. Details at adirondackfoundation.org. And by Guideboat Realty, located in Saranac Lake, where health, history, and the arts meet in the Adirondacks. Your guide to Adirondack real estate. Guideboatrealty.com. Brook trout are the official New York State fish, and they're particularly emblematic of the under Adirondacks. Pete McIntyre leads Cornell's Adirondack Fishery Research Program, which has a field station in Old Forge. This is a fish which is central to sense of place and of environmental health in the Adirondacks. But the brook trout's existence is being threatened. That's according to a recent Cornell University study. Found that 95% of Adirondack lakes have an oxygen problem, as in there's not enough for fish species like brook trout. Amy Feireisel reports. In the spring of 2021, Cornell University's Adirondack Fishery Research Program put sensors in 15 fairly untouched lakes. We're talking very little human activity. Some of them have absolutely none. Stephen Jane is a lake ecosystem ecologist. He was a postdoc at Cornell from 2021 to 2023. Some of them you have to hike several miles in to access. The specialized sensors were attached to ropes with a buoy at the top and an anchor at the bottom. They measured temperature and oxygen levels in the water. And we were surprised when we did that to find just how deoxygenated a lot of these lakes are. After all, these were pretty pristine lakes. It was a shocking finding, says Pete McIntyre. He leads Cornell's Adirondack Fishery Research Program. The breadth of the problem across the thousands of lakes and ponds in the Adirondacks is way bigger than we had expected to see, even after you know coming from a team that's worked on brook trout for decades. The crux of the problem is this. Brook trout need cold, well-oxygenated water to thrive in. They can't live in the warm water at the tops of lakes, and they also can't live in the low-oxygen water near the bottom. But both of those inhospitable zones are getting bigger, leaving a shrinking space for cold-water fish. And so that's this squeeze where the, the trout are stuck in between the two. Both are inhospitable. But that space is amazingly, it's amazingly thin. Those spaces have gotten smaller in about 95% of Adirondack lakes over the last 30 years. Now, during the warmest part of the year, late August and much of September, McIntyre says the fish are lucky to have five feet of suitable water. The reasons for this squeeze are many, says Stephen Jane, the lead researcher. Surface warming from climate change is one, but the situation is made much worse by something called browning. 
you're getting increased sort of runoff of dissolved organic material from the surrounding watershed. That darkens lakes and warms their surfaces. That's not good for cold water fish. The case for most situations is that as you brown these lakes, you're reducing the amount of that cold, highly oxygenated habitat. There are two exceptions, extremely clear lakes and lakes that are at least 30 meters deep, making them somewhat immune from both warming and browning. Lakes like that sort of have an increased importance in protecting these cold water species uh, moving forward. So where does browning come from? Jane says it can be triggered by physical disturbances like logging and road salt and from climate change impacts like more extreme precipitation. But the most significant contributor to browning in Adirondack lakes is acid rain. Pete McIntyre again. For a century, we acidified this entire region. Acid rain came from the smokestack emissions upwind to the west. Along with all those acids came mercury. So anywhere that you had an acid problem, you had a mercury problem. Scientists, citizens, and lawmakers have worked really hard to reduce acid rain and have made huge strides. Legislation like the Clean Air Act greatly reduced air pollution. Lots of wildlife, like loons, have made big comebacks. But the legacy impacts of acid rain are still present in the Adirondack ecosystem. We see it in the more acidic soil and in the accumulation of mercury, which is toxic to fish and animals and the people who eat them. McIntyre says Jane's research is particularly frightening because mercury only enters the food chain under low oxygen conditions, which browning is accelerating. The initial concern is, okay, if we boost low oxygen conditions, then are we also going to take, you know, basically unleash the, the mercury problem? Jane's findings have opened a whole Pandora's box of questions about the future of brook trout in Adirondack Lakes, about mercury accumulation and what it could mean for animals and humans. Jane says knowing what's happening in the lakes is vital so that people can make decisions about how best to steward and even manage them to protect species in the most impactful way. But he fears that his research could lead to people giving up. One of my sort of concerns about this finding is that it reaches a point where people say, okay, well, we've got to say so long to brook trout, so let's just put smallmouth bass in all these lakes. Pete McIntyre stressed that Jane's findings are concrete evidence of a changing environment. There are big changes afoot in Adirondack waters that, we're, that we can't see. McIntyre says given that scientists hadn't even guessed how bad the oxygen problem was prior to this study, it begs this question. What other invisible challenges may lie ahead for Adirondack lakes and their fisheries? Amy Fireisel, North Country Public Radio. A nonprofit in the eastern Adirondacks has partnered with the University of Vermont to create a new mentorship program for black and Latino students. The program is called Young Men of Talent. It was organized by an Essex nonprofit group, College for Every Student. A representative told Burlington's NBC News Station program will pair students with Vermont businesses and organization leaders for one-on-one mentoring and career advice. It'll also connect mentees with job readiness workshops and networking opportunities. 20 students from UVM's current freshman class have already been chosen to participate. Only first and second year students can apply. Older students can also get involved as peer mentors.
The filming of a new movie in Lake Placid is wrapping up this week. It's one of three movies that's being shot in the Adirondack Village this winter. Today and tomorrow are the last days shooting the movie called Christmas at the Interlochen, which has been described as a comedy set as set at a mysterious holiday party. The movie is being directed by Candace Kane, who also directed A Jar Full of Christmas, which was filmed in the village in December. Kane said she plans to shoot one more Christmas movie in Lake Placid later this month. Listening to Northern Lights right here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. In just a minute, old rickety barns are slowly disappearing from the landscape. St. Lawrence County artist shares his love for the old structures in just a minute. Then stick around the sh- uh, after the show for Bird Note coming up at 842. But first, Todd, is a look at the weather. More sunshine today, partly sunny tomorrow, partly cloudy Thursday and Friday. But milder temperatures, highs this afternoon, low to mid-30s, mid to upper 30s tomorrow, highs in the 40s on Thursday and Friday. Right now in Canton, we have sunshine and 15 degrees. Artist Stephen Cobb has always admired the outdoors. An avid fly fisherman for years, he's painted rivers, lakes, and landscapes. He grew up in St. Lawrence County and describes himself as a mostly self-taught artist working in acrylics and oils. Since the pandemic, he's rediscovered a beauty in old barns and has turned his attention to black and white paintings of the weathered iconic structures. They dot the landscapes throughout the region. Some lean on rotting beams with collapsed roofs amid scrubby, abandoned farmsteads. It's the bleakness, Stephen told our Todd Moe, that led him to working in black, white, and gray. The gallery at Lake St. Lawrence Arts in downtown Waddington along St. Lawrence River is hosting a special exhibit of Stephen Cobb's work this month. Among the woven tapestries, pottery, and photography that fill the gallery, you'll find a series of monochromatic oils of old barns. So what... Is it about barns that, you know, you talked about the solitude of fly fishing. There's kind of a solitude with there is, the barn. And, right? and they're such an uh, iconic part of the North Country. And they are um, now, but they're all starting to just decay. They're crumbling right into the ground. I really like the fact that it was the siding coming off and you can really get in there and see the bones. and The history. The history, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I have my camera with me all the time and I will venture off into the country and in search of barns and uh, I have stacks and stacks of photos that I can I can use it's amazing because um, there are literally old barns like this all over the place um, they're everywhere uh, I took a trip down to Massachusetts mm-hmm. just outside of Springfield and we were coming up through and I said man if I ever run out of old barns up here there's just you know i was snapping pictures like crazy so you find a barn uh maybe you're driving around and you see something and what do you you kind of walk around it and look for just sort of the right angle i will usually snap 
10, 15, 20, yeah. 20 shots from different different distances and different angles, and then uh, bring them back and uh, throw them in Photoshop. And usually uh, uh, I kind of like the fact that uh, you're not showing the whole thing, yeah. so it leaves a little bit to the imagination. Yeah. And uh, I have to be a little more a little more structured with my perspective and such to to make it work it's really hard thing to just do a building straight on and have it look like it's not just a building block sitting there it's not as easy it looks as it looks right what makes a good barn what makes what you know because there are a lot of barns around here and and are you looking for a specific structure something that catches your eye i can see into for the most part Uh um uh, something that has a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a, a catch to it, like the tilted barn. That thing has just got such a great lean. Yeah. Um, and that's not too awful far away. I wave to it every time I go by, and yeah. it it has a little more lean to it now. <laughs> You've captured it uh, before the absolute end of its life. Right? Yes. Um, there's there's one barn uh, on Route 37 going into Ogdensburg. That is now almost down. Mm. I captured that on film and made a painting of it, just as at its peak of decline. Mm-hmm. You have at least one color barn painting here, and the rest are the are the black, white, gray. Is the idea that you're kind of translating? The age of the barn that uh, through the black and white imagery. The age and, and the black and white just gives it such an austere look. That uh-huh. I, I really, I really like that in in the old barn more than more than the color. Um, I'm not opposed to doing color. I, I I'm thinking I probably should do a few more color, but I think they're going to be subtle color. I grew up in uh-huh. DeKalb. DeKalb, okay. DeKalb Junction. And here's the streetscape. As you're yep. coming into town on Route 11, things haven't changed much in the Cowboy, exception of the the, the store. Uh, it pretty much looks just like it did when when I was growing up. So yeah, um, born and raised there. I'm assuming that there's kind of a a little bit of a story here in in terms of you're able to take a bit of North Country history, an, an old barn, and it's your interpretation of our agrarian landscape. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Well, this is my favorite of all the barns I've done. This is your favorite? This is my favorite. And why is that? I just love that barn. <laughs> is there something growing on the roof? It's really old um, mossy shingles. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I like the, like you say, you can see right through it to the to the yep. daylight on the other side of it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I did a good job. I'm seldom happy with my work, and, and this one I'm, I'm happy with. Artist Stephen Cobb, I caught up in him, caught up with him recently at Lake St. Lawrence Arts Gallery in downtown Waddington. He has an exhibit of barn paintings on display through the end of the month. Most days, though, you'll find him at his Quiet Racket Studio in Raymondville. And yeah, there's a photo of Stephen and his favorite painting with those mossy old shingles and all right now on the front page of our website at ncpr.org. 
Coming up on 28 minutes past 8, we want to take just a moment to remind you that the Saranac Lake Winter Carnival continues. And here's some music featuring Haley Jane. She'll be at uh, the Waterhole tomorrow night at 7 o'clock in Saranac Lake. Take a listen. It's so easy to forget what happens overseas When it don't affect me At least not directly I've been hiding and trying to avoid the trouble Easy kind of life when you're living in a bo-bo-bo-bo-bo the light Haley jane at uh, saranac lake winter carnival tomorrow night wednesday night starting at seven at the waterhole that's it for northern light on this tuesday it's the 6th of february don't forget morning edition continues in just a couple of minutes then after that it's market place morning report coming up between 8 51 and nine o'clock where you'll get caught up on all the morning's business news I'm Monica Sandresky. I'm Todd Moe. Thanks so much for listening and be well.